and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host Jess and in this fortnightly podcast I will be chatting all things books as well as interviews with authors, publishers and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read or you want to know the story behind the story then this is the podcast for you. In today's author chat episode, I chat to Tabitha Bird about her latest release, The Emporium of Imagination. Tabitha is a writer and poet who lives in the rural township of Boona, Queensland. By day, Tabitha may be found painting, working on her next book, or with her husband, three beautiful boys, and Chihuahua. In today's episode, we chat about the inspiration behind this book, how she explores grief throughout the book, and we chat about writing in the genre of magical realism. Here is Tabitha. Hi, Tabitha, and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to be here today. Now, my first question that I ask everyone is, what are you currently reading? Oh, I have actually just finished reading something that I'm not emotionally over yet. Um, it's Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce, and I just ah <laughs> loved it. I absolutely loved it. And so I haven't picked up another one yet because I'm in that phase where you're like still with the characters and you don't want to let go. <laughs> Have a bit of a book hangover. I do. I really do. Jolly authors. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. Is that a new release? Yeah, it is a new release. She's not an Australian author. She's actually British, I believe. Um but I fell in love with her work a while ago and, and this was a new one, so I just had to read it. But, yeah, it, I think it came out a few months back. Oh, very good. Very good. Now, we're going to discuss your latest release, The Emporium of Imagination. So can you tell us a bit about the story? Yeah, absolutely. So The Emporium of Imagination is the story of The Emporium, which actually is this quirky vintage shop that travels the world and it settles in places and towns and cities where the people need it. And when I say need it, what I mean is that people visit the Emporium to have one last phone conversation with a lost loved one, or they might visit the Emporium to buy vintage wares which actually physically connect them to somebody or something that they have loved and lost So the Emporium sort of helps people to work through their grief. But the main characters in the story is uh, Erlitich and he is an older man but he is the custodian of the Emporium. So he travels around with the Emporium and his job is to invite people to the store but also to find the shopkeeper. And he's having a little bit of difficulty because he realises that actually it's not only the shopkeeper he needs to find, he needs to find a new custodian because his time is running out and he's actually disappearing. And so he has to figure that that little mystery out, which is rather a big mystery when you're actually disappearing. Um, And the story of Enoch, who is 10 and holds some big secrets around why he feels so personally responsible for the death of his dad. And then Anne, who is a woman in her middle age who is also holding a lot of secrets very close to her heart and is intimately connected to Enoch and his family but she won't say why, and she has a lot of need for visiting the Emporium. And so it's their three stories intertwined as well as the township of Boona. 
Mm, I loved it. Now, I want to start off by talking about the magic of the Emporium. So in the book, you write, the Emporium is a bustle of a place. People come and go. Some see magic everywhere. They have phone messages and answer their phone when it rings. Other people see less magic and a more commonplace shop selling quirky vintage wares. It depends on what they expect to see. A person looking for the impossible will find it. One who isn't cannot. So tell us, what would you find in the Emporium when you went in there? <laughs> uh, I think that I my eyes would be open to the impossible because I actually am a big believer in the impossible. I'm a big believer in the impossible in the ordinary days of our lives because I think there is a thing called ordinary magic, uh, which is the magic of things like the love of grandmothers and the connection between people that we love, family members, um, but also just things like the smell of the grass after it rains or the sounds of thunderstorms in the distance. There's so much ordinary magic in our life. But then also and just in my life personally, the fact that I'm here and the fact that I'm well after having quite a traumatic start in life um, and have a gorgeous marriage and a lovely family to me is quite an impossibility as well. So I think if I visited the Emporium, I would definitely take my shoes off and let my feet sink into the grass. I would encourage my kids to catch ladybirds that pop and turn into lollipops. And I think I would like to buy a vintage tea set where I could have one last tea party with my nanny who passed about a year ago. Oh, I love that. And I loved there was a few characters in there who set up a little picnic on the grass in there. And I was like, oh, that just sounds delightful. I would definitely be down for that. (laughs) yeah exactly they did they set up a little picnic and just enjoyed themselves (laughs) yeah now the phones that we spoke about in the emporium allow visitors to the shop to speak to those who are no longer earthside and I believe this concept of the phone booth is actually based on a real life phone in Japan is that correct That is correct. And I'm sorry if you can hear some slight barking in the background. My puppies have decided that something's exciting. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, If you follow me on social media, you know I have a chihuahua. So apologies. Um, Yeah, so the phone booth is, it's actually based on um, a Japanese gardener called Mr. Ituru. Mr. Ituru is a Japanese gardener and he's quite a, a famous garden designer And he, on his property, he built this beautiful garden. And inside this garden, he placed, or he actually built a phone booth, a little white phone booth. And inside the white phone booth, he placed a black rotary phone. It was disconnected, but he used that phone in order to have conversations with his cousin who had passed the year before from cancer. And so it was his way of staying connected to his cousin and also processing his own grief. And then when his town was hit by the 2011 tsunami that hit most of the coastline of Japan there, his own village lost a number of people. So 10% of his village was actually wiped out, which is thousands and thousands of people. And so he opened up his phone booth and his garden to the public and he invited people to come and speak to their lost loved ones on his phone. And to his surprise, people in their hundreds and thousands did. They came and they wanted to speak to their lost loved ones And then he opened it up actually worldwide so that people around the world could come if they wanted to and use his phone booth. And so to this day, I'm sure COVID has interrupted this slightly, but uh, to this day, thousands and thousands of people have visited his phone booth, 
simply because they wanted an opportunity to speak to a lost loved one. Now, obviously, it's disconnected and obviously they were not actually talking to anybody. However, for them, it was really real and really powerful. And I just thought of how amazing it is that our imaginations are just so powerful to heal the things that hurt us. And so I thought that needs to go in a book. So that little seed of inspiration found its way into the Emporium. Yeah, that's amazing. And how did you come across that story? Um, When I was doing a little thing called procrastinating. (laughs) 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 So I should have been writing. And for me, I'm a very messy writer. I don't plan anything. And so I'm just sort of open to ideas. And I subscribe to um, an email that comes into my inbox from a website called Atlas Obscura. And they just have interesting stories from all around the world. And this happened to be one of them. So when I wasn't writing, I clicked on this little story and read it and just thought, wow, and blew my mind. So it was, it kind of just happened across my path at an opportune time, really. Yeah, wow. And did you, um, I guess, center the rest of the book around that concept? Or were you just kind of keeping it in the back end for whenever it kind of would fit into one of your narratives? Um, no, I had the, I had a lot of the Emporium already written and I was looking for that magic that would connect the stories of the people that I already had. So I had the idea for a shop of sorts. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what the magic of the shop would be. And so I didn't just want to provide the township with a phone booth. I wanted to provide them with a whole shopping experience in which they could have conversations on a phone. So the Emporium sort of grew out of that and then the story became intermingled. So, yeah, I think I w- it, was a la- it was just serendipitous maybe to come across that little piece of information at the right time and then I just rewrote the story to bring it all in together and very messy drafting but it makes for fun writing. <laughs> I love it. Now, the book, as we spoke about before, is a real exploration of grief and how we all grieve differently. And through the characters, we can identify that grief doesn't discriminate, that no matter what your age or gender is, we all experience grief, but we all experience it differently. And you mentioned in your author's notes at the end of the book that this story was part of your experience of um, coping or dealing with grief. Can you tell us a bit about why this story is so special for you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first began writing this story, um, it wasn't very long after and my nanny, who was just the woman of my world really, she was this precious woman who just believed in me and just this person who just always loved me. It didn't matter what I did. I think I could have told her I was moving to the moon and she would have thought that was the best idea ever. She was just so supportive of me. And so during this time she was actually diagnosed with cancer and it wasn't very long after that that we found out not only was it cancer but it was going to be terminal. She wasn't going to recover from this cancer. She was already in her, uh, she was about 83 when this happened. So you know, she wasn't young either. And we just sort of knew that this was, this was it. And I remember her telling me one day, she said, you know, Tabitha, I'm not going to spend the last months or whatever I get of life in hospitals. So I'm not going to do anything. I'm not fighting this. I'm just going to enjoy my life. And I'm just going to be with the people I love. And that's exactly what she did. She went home and she had a small bucket list of things that she wanted to do. Things like 
eat the best pie at one of the uh, one of the pie stores and you know things like that so we did things like that which were really fun um but also kind of sad because obviously we were doing them because she wasn't going to be with us anymore and so the story became really really personal because there was all this grief of watching somebody die so it's kind of like a living grief the person's still with you but you're grieving because you know you know that they're not going to be and there was so much um, guilt tied up in that for me because I realised that although I wanted her to stay, of course I wanted her to stay, I also desperately wanted her to go and not because I wanted to lose her but because it was so painful watching somebody that you love die of cancer and also she was in pain especially towards the end and you just wanted it to be over for her and I felt really bad about that until I realised that Wanting the end of our own suffering is probably one of the most innocent and human emotions and needs that we can have. And there's nothing to feel guilty about it. And that grief itself is not black and white. In fact, it's many shades and textures and colours. And, you know, we can feel real joy and real happiness in our grief or we can feel deep sadness, we can feel guilt, we can feel lots of things and it's all just normal and okay. Um, So I started giving those emotions to both Enoch and Anne in the story and even Erlitage and just letting them, I guess, deal with what I was going through. And so it sort of became my way of ex- of expressing and maybe exploring what I was going through too and just highlighting the fact that grief is a bit of a taboo topic. Um, and so story is a really safe way to explore it. Mm, absolutely, because I loved this book, but I loved it even more so after I read your author's note because that really resonated with me because I had a very similar situation in which my nan was the same. She was diagnosed with terminal cancer and it was kind of, yeah, you were kind of, like you said, in two minds, like you, you're going to miss her, but also watching her fade away, you know, each time you would go in and see her knowing that she's not that same person anymore, you know, it, it was hard to deal with. And, yeah, um, yeah it, it was really hard to explore that grief too. And you say about the happy emotions and the guilt. So um, we found out that I was pregnant when she was in her late stages. So, mm, you know, I remember, yeah, I remember I was saying to her, I was like, I, I just need you to open your eyes because at this stage we knew she could hear what what was going on in that you know they say your hearing is the last thing that kind of goes and we knew that she could hear and she did she opened her eyes and she looked at me and she grabs my hand and she's you know she was trying to tell me that that is amazing you know and and it did it was that that feeling of guilt like I I know you're not going to be able to meet this sort of one and that um you know, and and then she actually passed away the next day the next night um and oh Try not to get teary. <laughs> oh, that's so, yeah, that's so emotional. I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we actually, I ended up miscarrying on, on her funeral and they, they put oh. it down to, to stress and that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, looking back on it now, I, I can see that maybe that pregnancy wasn't, you know, right for me at that stage. And I feel like she, she kind of has that baby. I can just, I can feel that. And it's a really special bond with, with your grandparent, isn't it? Like it is really hard to see them in pain and, and fade away. And yeah, I, I really loved how you explored that through the book. 
Uh, thank you. And look, sorry for your loss and your double loss, really. And and it's just so, yeah, it's so incredibly painful. And I just think that in our grieving, there's a real opportunity for connection. And I think we miss that a lot in Western culture. And I also wanted to sort of, I guess, reach out through the book and say, you're not alone. Um, but then also encourage us to reach out to others, you know, other safe relationships in our lives and just express when we need that help and when we well, even just if we need to talk about it or we just need to say I'm having a bit of a sad day today because grief doesn't have this neat beginning and this neat end it doesn't go in seven neat stages it doesn't follow some predetermined path it just is what it is for every person as as you would know and I mean you can be grieving somebody 5 10 15 20 even more years later mm-hmm. and still feel, feel the loss just as keenly um and my my thinking around that is because grief is about love. I mean, we wouldn't grieve anybody that we hadn't loved. So therefore, when somebody passes, we don't stop loving them just because they're not here. We don't, you know, you don't suddenly stop loving your nan. I certainly haven't stopped loving my nanny. We don't stop loving these people. So the love goes on. So grief is almost like a love that goes on. And so therefore, there's no time limit for that. Why would you ever... Why, in a way, why would you ever really ever want to be over that? I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to be over my nanny dying. However, it probably won't feel the same all the time, but we still might want to talk about it. You know, like I really wanted to talk about it on the year anniversary of her passing. You know, when my book, when the Emporium first came out and she wasn't around for that, I felt sad. At the very first launch event I had for it and she wasn't there in the audience, you know, there was a renewed grief. So I think we just, as people, you know, as humans, I think we just want to stay curious and stay connected, you know, and it's just, I think my book is an invitation to do that, you know, to connect to our own grief, but also just to reach out to people around us and, you know, stay connected and, and talk about it if we need to talk about it and yeah, just love each other, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Because I think, like you said, it is quite a taboo topic in that, I think in the Western world, we don't really know how to how to grieve, how to talk about it, how to be okay that it's okay to be upset and feel um, mm. emotions that way as well. And I think I've realised that even more so becoming a mother, that it's like I, I want my kids to be able to feel their feelings and if they're sad, they need to know that it's it's okay to be sad. You don't need to toughen up and, and move on. And I think that's the same with grief. We need to be able to be, you know, find a way to be comfortable to sit in those sad feelings and, and feel all the feelings. We do. And the more that we get comfortable doing that for, for ourselves, the more that we can do that for others. So if we can be comfortable with our own sadness or our, our own feelings of discomfort, then we can be comfortable to sit in that space with other people without having to have answers, without having to tell them you'll be all right. I mean, of course, you know, probably we're going to be all right. But at that moment, we're not all right. And you know, just to have someone sit alongside you and just be there, hold your hand, um, or even just say, I'm here. And if you want to talk about it, I'm here to listen if you want, if you need to talk about it, you know. And you're right, we we do that really poorly in Western society. So um, the more that we can talk about these things, the less stigma there is around it and the less we leave each other alone, you know, conversation immediately connects uh, people. So, yeah. Absolutely. Now, 
you write through the lens of uh, magical realism, which I can't imagine anyone would be able to do unless they were creatively inclined. And this is something I've always been very envious of because I don't identify as being someone who's very creative. (laughs) And your creativity and imagination really show through your writing. So can you tell us a bit about your writing style and where do you get your inspirations from? Yeah, magical realism is just this awesome, fun genre that actually found me. Um, I wrote the A Lifetime of Impossible Days, my first book, and had no idea that I was actually writing magical realism. It was a literary agent that pointed it out. And then I Googled it and learnt what it was and went, oh, yeah. And so the way I describe that for people who haven't heard of that term before is just that magical realism sits right in the sweet spot between contemporary fiction and fantasy. It isn't contemporary and it's not fantasy. So magical realism is set here in the world in which we all live, but there's this otherworldly twist. So there's something in the story that is a bit other than. Um, So for fantasy, we go through doors or through portholes or through wardrobes into whole new worlds. And in contemporary fiction, of course, everything is the way it is, you know, there's nothing that's otherworldly at all. So Magistral Realism sort of stretches its hands in both directions and sort of loves both those reader groups and invites them in. Um, and I guess for me, yeah, I, I'm, I let my imagination run wild, I do. <laughs> and I think I have, I have a mental illness called bipolar 2 and I often think that the way in which I see the world and the way in which I make connections between things has a lot to do with the fact that I have bipolar too. My brain doesn't work the way other people's brains work and it does come with a lot of intense creative periods and often I'll see connections and other people will go, how in the world did you link those two things together? That's really cool. Um, So I put that down to one of the things that I don't mind about my illness, there are plenty of things that are difficult to live with about bipolar too, but that isn't one of them. Um, so I think that's really where a lot of my creativity and ideas come from. And other than that, I'm just sort of open. So like when I start writing, I kind of have a pact with the universe where I actually say, hey, I'm creating, want to have fun, want to join in. If you've got any ideas, throw them in this direction. And you know what? It always works. For the Emporium, I mean, the phone booth turned up and in a lifetime of impossible days, the ocean turned up. So there are many things that just happen across my path. And I like to think that, you know, I'm sort of creating not just alone, (laughs) but it's not a a vacuum thing. I love that. So I know there's authors out there who kind of, you know, Sally Hepworth has a um, 350 words a day that she kind of likes to stick to, you know, it doesn't matter what she writes, she just likes to kind of, you know, write something. How does that work creatively? Does that kind of, can that, I guess, squash your creative ideas? Do you just need to roll with it when it comes? Um, I think because, once again, because of my illness, there are days where, I am really, really low. And so therefore even getting out of bed on those days is just not possible sometimes. So because I need to self-care a lot, I am very gentle with my creative process because if I wasn't gentle with it, I wouldn't have it. Um, So for me, when I am having a good day and when I'm feeling, when I'm feeling like I can sit in front of a computer and write, I will write. On other days where that's not there and not available to me, I've learned to be gracious and I've learned to not push myself to a certain word limit and not 
you know, not get hard on myself about not achieving those sorts of things. So I don't have daily word limits. However, I like to stay connected to my story mentally. So I will often be telling the story to myself or having little mini conversations with those characters to see what they would do or what they think or what would they say if, um, and playing a lot of what if games, even if I'm not actually sitting down typing. So when I get to the computer, I often have a bank of stuff that's just ready to flow. So I often say that my best writing happens when I'm not at the computer at all. And I'm actually just thinking gardening, painting, something else. And all of a sudden my mind will just click, 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 click. And I'll be like, that's good. And I'll write that down. So I have a daily practice of staying connected to my creativity and being gentle. And then the word count, I don't actually pay any attention to it at all. I just write. No, I love that because I think in society today, like we feel very guilty if we're not being productive, that, you know, self-care is kind of becoming, um, you know, a bit more um, popular now, I guess, in looking after ourselves and not trying to feel that guilt as much. So I really like that idea that you kind of just let the words come to you. I do. And I am fortunate that I that writing is a full-time gig for me now, so I don't um, have a job to work around. Uh, if I had a job to work around, I think I would perhaps need to carve out some more time in there. And when my kids were younger, so when my kids were little and I was writing, I often wrote quite late into the night because obviously they're asleep and the house is quiet. So there were many years there where I wrote between the hours of 11 o'clock and sort of one or two in the morning. And um, that was my time. So it, it ebbs and flows. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, talking about creativity, can we talk about the marketing campaign that you ran for the book? <laughs> um, so you sent out a few arts to a few uh, bookstagrammers, some very lucky ones. And alongside the book, you had some cute little vintage items that kind of were inspired from the Emporium. Can you tell us a bit about this campaign? And is marketing and promoting, I guess, something you also enjoy alongside writing? Yeah, I, I discovered pretty early on that marketing is just a connection and a communication between you and the reader, between you and people. And when I worked that out, I was like, well, I love connection and I like talking. So I think I like this. I think I like this marketing thing. Um, so I'm not overly salesy but I do let people into my stories. And so sending the boxes out was my idea. I wanted to send a box to people as if the Emporium itself had packaged up a little box and shipped it out like a hello and a welcome, here I am sort of box. Um, and I had been collecting all these vintage wares off eBay. The moment I started writing the book, I physically started collecting vintage wares that arrived in our home and it became a joke. My husband would say, the Emporium has arrived again. There's more of the Emporium here. And it actually started to take over. We had stuff everywhere. And my husband said to me one day, what are you going to do with all this? Um, and I looked at it and some pieces I wanted to keep, but others I was like, I'd actually love to send them out to readers Um and get them to feel what I feel when I'm writing the Emporium and sort of give them an experience, not just not just a book, but an actual physical tactile experience. So I actually love it. I absolutely love marketing. I love letting my creativity run wild in other areas other than writing. Um, and so marketing, especially today for authors, is just so important. Um, publishing houses definitely do get involved, but if you yourself can 
be you and be unique and share what's unique about you. Readers seem to really love that. And and my readers have particularly joined me in all kinds of mayhem and madness. So <laughs> and they got they got to be a part of creating the Emporium too. They they got to name the cat. They got to choose the colour of the door. There were many things that I involved them in, so they loved it, <laughs> and I did too. Yeah, wow, that is so cool. Okay, now to wrap up, what can we expect next from Tabitha Bird? <laughs> Good question. Um, Tabitha Bird is supposed to be writing, and she is, but in bits and pieces at the moment. There's there's another book that is in my heart at the moment and growing steadily. Um, and I imagine will be completed in the next couple of months, that is the story of another what if. Um, and I wanted to think, what if wonder, actual wonder, what if wonder was a character? And what if wonder was really young? She's only four. She had a name. She was wonder, but she had a name. And she was in a place or in a situation where the adults around her had lost their wonder for many reasons. What would happen? Um, and so I've let her go and have a bit of a run amok with a few characters and things, interesting things are happening. So that that's on the horizon. Um, and other than that, I'm working pretty hard on illustration at the moment. I'm also working towards writing a children's picture book. So I'm learning about illustration. Um, art. I've always been able to paint and draw and my art's a big part of my life, but learning to illustrate books is another area to learn. So that's been a lot of fun. So that's what I'm up to. Wow, that's exciting. So you're planning on writing a children's book as well as illustrating it? Yeah, so I do actually have children's picture book manuscripts which are fairly polished, um, but I'm sitting on them <laughs> because <laughs> I, want to get, I want to get good enough to actually illustrate them as well. And at the moment, I, there's so much. There's just so much to learn. So um, I don't know if you've heard of Zanny Louise. She's an Australian picture book author. She's amazing. So Zanny and I have been working together um, and I've been learning a lot from Zanny. So, yeah. One day, that's my that's, next one day. <laughs> that's cool because I have heard a few authors say that um, children's picture books is kind of one of the the harder genres to to um, succeed at. It is, and it's definitely very different. You know, you, you suddenly go from having 95,000 words to express yourself to having about 350 words to express yourself and one of the hardest audiences out there, which are children, um, <laughs> and they either love it or they don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Tabitha, thank you so much for joining me today. Tabitha's book, The Emporium of Imagination, is published by Penguin and is available now. You can also follow Tabitha on Instagram at bird Tabitha. So thank you again so much, Tabitha. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for having me. It was such a fun conversation. And yeah, thanks for sharing and connecting. It's been great. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at So Novel Podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.